This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The American system of housing production isn't performing well and hasn't performed well for quite a while. But it's the kind of system that exists overwhelmingly at the local level. In Auburn, Maine, local policymakers got out of their own way and started opening the door to new housing. Greg Brooks of the Better Cities Project describes the political and policy stories that can be replicated elsewhere. A lot of people who like their communities just the way they are, thank you very much, no reform needed here. A lot of those people uh, don't really seem to appreciate that a hundred years ago, uh, this may be an idyllic time when they look, look back on it, of these were the good days um, of this town and it was beautiful, it was bustling, yeah, and all those things. Um, a lot, in many cases, a lot more kinds of stuff could be built in a wider variety of locations that can't be built today. So getting from here to there, it's a long slog quite often. And, you know, the, the people standing in the way are often the people who, once again, like things just the way they are. Well, I love how you queued that up because the reality is you couldn't build the towns of a hundred years ago today. You can't build that anywhere. In, in most, most of your basic post-war suburbs that exist today and that are beloved by people who don't want their neighborhoods to change, you can't build those homes anymore. A design review committee might stop you. The city council might demand inclusionary zoning and low-income housing. And all of that, that backdrop of no, is what makes what they're doing in Auburn, Maine, so interesting. It is what uh, Mercatus' Dan Rothschild referred to as perhaps the yimbiest city in America. And what's great about it is that it's not a giant metropolis that's being driven by activist, you know, professional yimbies, right? Yimby Inc., if you will. <laughs> uh, it's a small town of about 24,000 people. It's slowly dying because not enough people want to stay in Maine. That's a problem with all the cities in Maine. And they elected a pro-growth mayor in 2017 who said, we need to fix this. And the story of Auburn is the story is really two stories. It's the political story of how they did it and the actual policies that uh, none of which are revolutionary, but most of which could be adopted by nearly any city in America to increase the housing supply. Is it fair to characterize then that this is a problem of cities that are in decline? Uh, because like where I live in beautiful, the beautiful Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, I live in a very fast growing place. So my suspicion is that towns like that would not view that pressure quite the same way that they would uh, look at it as, oh, no, we got we got plenty of land. We got plenty of uh, places to build. We got people who want to build. Uh, is that fair? I wouldn't characterize it that way. I would say that the same market forces that make it more difficult to buy a home today than uh, than perhaps as little as 20 years ago, uh, those forces exist everywhere in fast-growing cities and declining cities, in the exurbs, the suburbs, in the urban core. It looks different. Uh, in, in your community, you mentioned that it's, it's fast-growing. We've got a lot of land. A community with a lot of land and a lot of fast growth can still be dragging its 
feet versus what the market wants, right? If the market wants a lot of apartments or condominiums because that's what young buyers can afford and the fast-growing city council is saying, no, we're only going to allow single-family tract homes or out in the excerpts, we're only going to allow lots of five acres or above, for example. You've still got a problem. It's not a visible problem now. You're basically laying the foundation for future problems. So uh, what did Mayor Levesque in Auburn, Maine, uh, do to try to get this process uh, started? Because, and, And just as a backdrop, every time I talk about zoning and housing reform and that sort of thing, there's always a very clear constituency made up of the likeliest of voters, that is homeowners, uh, that again, don't, don't typically want that sort of, uh, reform. So what's interesting about Mayor Levesque that stands out as a political story is he ran on an explicitly pro-growth platform in, uh, first elected mayor in 2017 and, uh, set about and and the other interesting thing is his first effort at those pro-growth reforms failed about 40 percent of auburn maine exists in an agricultural district what's what's colloquially called the ag zone within the ag zone uh property values are extraordinarily low because there's very little farming going on up there anymore and so second growth forest has taken over a lot of that the property owners who love live there love their their uh, near, nearly returned to nature environment, and they love the fact that they don't pay a lot in taxes because the land value is so low. So, Mayor Levesque's initial effort to try and reform the ag zone hit a lot of pushback. But coming out of that pushback was constituency that said, "Yeah, don't mess with this." But we do recognize that the city needs to grow, and what else can we do? And that laid the groundwork for all the subsequent reforms. And what were they? So they did several things. Uh, they uh, most of the city was uh, residential land was zoned to allow duplexes. They basically passed an ordinance that was a super version of an accessory dwelling unit or ordinance, and essentially said. You can build a second home on your lot. It does not have to be smaller than the existing home, and it can take one of many forms. It can. You want to build a granny flat? That's that's fine. You want to build a an entire second standalone home? That's fine. Uh, you want to build multiple units? That's fine. So they did that. Uh, after that, they eliminated most parking requirements for commercial property throughout the city. Uh, also uh, had a had a big impact on infill development. Then, and I, and I should point out that in this stack, one of the, one of the keys to success here was that they didn't roll up with an omnibus package of zoning reforms. All of these were passed individually and incrementally. So they after they reformed parking, they uh, allowed development of up to 16 units per acre in uh, in several parts of the city. And implicit in that, well, implicit, along with that, they undertook form-based zoning. And what that means is that the building has to conform to a certain 
a certain amount of density, right? You can have up to three and a half stories. Uh, it, it can be up to X thousand square feet. But w- the business of that building, whether it's residences, whether it's commercial, whether it's a mix, that's very open and flexible. And as a result of, of these reforms, and, and they did some other stuff around the edges, but I really want to stick with those because those are the ones that are portable to almost any other city. As a result of those reforms, here's this little town of 24,000 people. They've got 600 new apartments in the pipeline right now. They field 20 calls a day, five days a week from homeowners, developers, and others who want to build something new in the community. Uh, and, and that number is easily 5x what they were doing, doing before. And, you know, from a political perspective, it's clear that residents liked this. The, mayor, the mayoral term in um, Auburn is two years. The mayor has very little power beyond being a cheerleader. And yet he's been reelected uh, for multiple terms with an increasing share of the vote. So clearly the city has decided to get behind this. One thing you mentioned was uh, parking reforms. And uh, I think for a lot of towns, and I guess I don't really understand why, these minimum sizes or minimum numbers of parking spaces ends up creating a lot of strip malls that we do not associate with idyllic uh, life or we don't, they're not beautiful. They're not lovely. That's right. And And, and, and they're not historically the way we have developed cities. But it's weird to see that sort of uh, preemption of private decision-making by uh, local towns and I guess counties and to some extent states to say this is how many parking spaces this business needs and i just if a business thinks they can if a developer thinks they can build a building with fewer parking spaces and still attract a customer who thinks they can then attract customers uh with whatever parking lot size they want if they even want a parking lot uh let them do it exactly uh, and Chuck Marone and his team over at Strong Towns have done a fantastic job of looking at this and looking at the value that is captured and generated by modern development patterns like this. And, and it's just miserable compared to older development styles. Uh, 16 units per acre. When we think about how what the suburbs look like, it's like maybe four units per acre. If, That's right. If... If I'm, if that's fair, uh, but so that, is that's the, a potentially huge, potentially radical shift. That doesn't sound like a radical shift in how much, uh, housing you're allowing to exist in a physical space. So it's up to 16 units per acre. And it, it is the most surprising element of all of their incremental reforms. It was suggested in the middle of a comprehensive plan review. And so there were multiple opportunities for community pushback or for the planning uh, the planning regime within the city to say, no, this isn't going to work. And, and yet it survived all of that. Now, here we are, you know, not years into it, but certainly long enough to s- start to see development interest. And just because you set a limit like that doesn't mean that immediately you're going to see 16 units per acre, right? What it does mean is in conjunction with some of the other things they're doing, you might see 10 units per acre plus ground floor commercial 
or something like that. That is, it's much more uh, in line with traditional development patterns and and much more indicative of the holistic nature of neighborhoods. The the way they got to where they're getting, and this is a big lesson for cities everywhere, is rather than have this dry plan that says you're commercial, it's like, it's like playing SimCity in real life, right? I'm going to draw out my commercial zones, my industrial zones, my residential zones. Rather than doing that, when they started listening to people in the community who'd lived there a long time and what they missed, everybody had a memory about a local neighborhood store that they loved. And they realized their current their current zoning and planning wouldn't allow that. My wife is from the Milwaukee area. And uh, of course, I'm from Louisville. And, you know, these are towns that sort of remind me of each other in a way, except in Louisville, so many of these homes that uh, are in older traditional neighborhoods, you can tell where the corner store used to be. That's right. And you see them all over the place. And I, I, you know, I have to wonder as a, just a casual observer, why isn't there a store there? There's plenty of uh, people living nearby. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of foot traffic in, in these areas. Why isn't that a store? Why isn't, why hasn't somebody made that decision? Well, because they're not allowed to make that decision. Most cities, for be, for reasons that you mentioned, like parking requirements, and uh, in more draconian zoning environments, they simply will not allow uh, certain forms of commercial development. And the result is, you know, it's it's easy to be dramatic and say, "Well, these zoning programs are killing our cities." No, our cities are just fine, right? But what we've lost track of is how much more dynamic they could be, how much more they could better the lives of the people who live in those cities if a lot of the restrictions were removed uh, and people were free to develop. And yes, there are going to be, look, there are going to be problems. Uh, Chick-fil-A is my, my favorite example of this because when Chick-fil-A comes to a community that has not ever had a Chick-fil-A, it's a slam dunk guarantee somebody is going to complain about the drive through line leaking out into street traffic occasionally. Right. Revenue per square foot right. on a Chick-fil-A is huge. And reminder, they're closed on Sunday. <laughs> so, um, you know, people in the planning community look at a problem like that and they say, okay, so rather than just allow us to build the Chick-fil-A, this has happened in another community. So before we allow a Chick-fil-A, we're going to have to put them through a process that says, okay, how do we prevent that traffic from spilling onto the street? How much, you know, how many lane miles do we need to add to that street to accommodate it and stuff? The conceit of planning, and I, I hate to sound like an anarchist here, there is a role for planning, but the conceit of planning is that the planners can see all possible outcomes. And that has never been true. And even with all our models today, it's not true. And so, you know, it, it, it sounds like a talking point, but let people expend their capital, let the experiments happen, and the community will let you know what's working and what isn't. Yeah, and the only way that conceit could be true is with a very high level of draconian central planning. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as anybody who worked uh, in the Soviet government in the 80s will tell you, 
uh, even draconian central planning <laughs> is, right, right. is limited. Greg Brooks is president of the Better Cities Project. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>